my dad grew up in Pilot Mountain, and he informed me when he was a kid that the ambulance and the hearse were one and the same. The same thing. So like the car from Ghostbusters, that was what you had. And he also told me something I didn't know until I was about today years old, maybe, well, not quite today, but a few years ago, that um, when someone passed away, someone would sit with the body all night long. And that's why it's called a wake, right? You've heard this, heard this before. And he told me he would do that. He would sit through, I mean, talk about, <laughs> talk about a hard experience. Um, but, you know, when, he, when the two things are the same thing, the ambulance and the hearse, you, see, you could say it with me, class. Conflict of interest. Conflict of interest a little bit. John, John Ortberg tells a story when he was young, a young man, he and another seminary student um, would go to rural communities that didn't have uh, someone to do funerals for them. And so they would drive one of those old school hearse ambulance style cars to little communities out in the country where he grew up and perform funerals for people that couldn't, there were no ministers around. And so he and a friend would do that. They'd do it all day, all day sometimes. And he said his friend that was with him got tired, so he laid down in the back of the hearse to take a nap. And they pulled into a gas station to fill up. And back then, you know, there was gas station attendants or people that would pump your gas for you. You remember? I don't remember this, but, I'm, I, you know, this is apparently a thing. And uh, he's like, this guy's pumping our gas. And his friend wakes up in the back and looks out the window and starts knocking. And the guy, like, jumped up and sprayed gasoline everywhere and, r and ran away. Now, he ran away because dead people don't knock on windows. And it's not supposed to happen. You know, our, our culture is understandably in some ways. We've sanitized death. We don't really want to talk about it. We don't want to think about it. We don't want to think about all that, what comes along with it. You want to distance yourself from it. Um, you know, in, in media and technology can, can trick us in many ways. What I mean is, like, the other day I was walking in Target, and I went through the uh, music section where they still sell records, amazingly enough. And a few CDs, actually. And I saw faces of artists who have made huge impact on our culture who have all passed away. Um, Whitney Houston. Has anyone sung a better national anthem than that woman? I don't think so. That is the greatest, incredible talent. I saw David Bowie, right, an amazing artist. Um, I saw Jimi Hendrix. Uh, Keith Richards. Actually, he's still alive, isn't he? That's amazing. <laughs> you know, how... <laughs> but, <laughs> But when you, you know, media, technology, TV, movies, it can, it can trick you into thinking that all these people are still with us, but they're not. You know, we tend to forget that. They passed on. You know, we don't have the answers to death. We can't overly um, overcome it. No matter how smart we get, no matter how much technology we have, we'll never be able to speak life into dry bones. We just can't do it. We'll never be able to do that. Now, it doesn't stop some from trying. There's a billionaire named Brian Johnson who's a tech mogul, and he is attempting to cheat death. He spends over $2 million a year on his body. Uh, on his website, his, his goal is to restore each of his 78 organs to those of an 18-year-old. He's 44 years old, right, 45 years old right now, actually. So he does about two, year, two million a year with the help of 30 doctors, and so far he's doing great. His skin is that of a 28-year-old. His lung capacity is 18 years old. And his gums 
could medal at Worlds if that was a weird competition. 17-year-old gums. Good for you, Brian. Another billionaire, Peter Thiel, has said he's basically against death. They're spearheading a new war on aging, which seems like a really rich person thing to do to turn back time. Now, of course, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. We should take care of them, of course. We should want to be as healthy as possible. There's no doubt about that. But eventually, death is inevitable. Pastor Charles Stanley at First Baptist of Atlanta has said that um, on more than many occasions, as many times as he has prayed with people on their deathbed to receive Christ, um, he has had almost an equal number of people who have said no. It's a sobering thought, isn't it? I mean, we have agency, we have choice, but as many people have said yes, as many people have said no. I mean, really, when we talk about the subject of death, as we'll look at today in Ezekiel, uh, we can have two attitudes. We can uh, trust in the God of the living, who raises the dead, or we can have the attitude of the poet Dylan Thomas, who famously said, do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. That's a poem he wrote for his father as he was passing away. So if that doesn't appeal to you, that sort of ragey attitude, I, you could, I recommend relying on the God who raises the dead. As N.T. Wright says, we are not to be surprised if living as Christians brings us to the place where we find our, we are at the end of our own resources and that we are called to rely on the God who raises the dead. So in the Old Testament, the prophet Ezekiel is presented with an impossible task. The living God says to Ezekiel, prophesy to this valley of dry bones. Speak to it and ask it to come alive. Ezekiel, of course, first goes, really? And then, but then we'll see through the story, God brings to life this valley of dry bones. So imagine a great battle scene, sort of like Lord of the Rings-esque, with thousands of dry bones in a valley. And of course, this is a, uh, a metaphor relating to the nation of Israel at that time. Ezekiel chapter 37. The hand of the Lord came upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me all around them. There were very many lying in the valley, and they were very dry. He said to me, Mortal, can these bones live? I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, I will cause breath to enter you, you and you shall live. I will lay sinews on you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I, Ezekiel, prophesied as I had been commanded. And as I, was, and as I prophesied, suddenly there was a noise, a rattling, and the bones came together bone to its bone. I looked and there were sinews on them and flesh had come upon them and skin had covered them and there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy mortal and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain that they may live. I prophesied as he commanded me and the breath came into them and they lived and stood on their feet, a vast multitude. Then he said to me, mortal, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are cut off completely. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from your graves. O my people, and I will bring you back to the land 
of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord God when I open your graves and bring you up from your graves. O my people, I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you on your own soil. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken and will act, says the Lord. Now again, this is a metaphor. The nation of Israel had lost its vitality. This is written around the time of the Babylonian captivity, uh, roughly in the 6th century BC for about 20 years. Um, thousands and thousands of people from Israel were taken as slaves by the Babylonians. So they were living in a foreign land. They once were a people, and now they had no identity. They once were free, and now they are enslaved. The movement they had has now become a monument to what was. They need a new life, a new resurgence, a new, really a new miracle in order to live again. And there are two really resurrections that happen here in this story. The first is the physical. The bones come together. Flesh covers them. That alone is a miracle, but that's the only the first part. The second part is just equally important. The breath of the Lord, the spirit of, the God, of God, the ruach of his living presence comes into those bodies and causes them to live. First, the, the bones come alive, but then the real life comes, which is the breath of God. The bones in the valley are dry. They've been there a long time. The people and nation of Israel have been cut off and lifeless. So they take on flesh again, these bones, but there's no life in them. The recovery of bones to form bodies is a picture of their national resurrection and restoration that would come. But without the spiritual renewal, they're not alive, are they? They're just merely physical bodies. You see this pattern happening throughout Scripture. In the book of Genesis, God forms man and woman from the dust. Like a lump of clay, he created them. But they weren't alive, were they? He had to breathe into their nostrils for life to come into them. Or in Pentecost, on that day in the upper room, Jesus told them to go into Jerusalem after I've ascended and wait on me. They waited for days and days in prayer. They waited, as he said, but nothing seemed to be happening. But they were physically present. And as they waited physically, the Holy Spirit came down like fire upon them and filled them with power and vitality. And so it goes with the nation of Israel. I will cause you to go into the land physically. You will go back one day, he is saying to Israel. But you will not be alive yet. You will, you will be physically alive, but you will not be spiritually alive until I breathe into you. Now, both of these things are miraculous. A physical restoration and a spiritual restoration. You know, I've had people say to me over the years, maybe you've heard this too, I would believe in God if I saw a miracle. I would believe in God if he would show me something. Sometimes he will. I would believe in God if he put $100,000 in my bank account. That'd be easy. I would believe in God if he would give me exactly what I want all the time. Now, I would say to you, every time you look in the mirror, you're actually looking at a miracle. The fact that you're even alive is a miracle. I was watching a National Geographic documentary. This tells you a lot about who I am, by the way. I'm very boring. But there's one called The Womb. And somehow they get cameras in this situation and they show you the process of a child being formed. And I forgot how many weeks it is, but at one point in this documentary, 
you know, when, there's an, when, when, we're, when we're like that, we're like this size, we don't have eyelids, right? And at one point, it, the narrator says, at this point in the process, a cutting device appears and makes an eyelid. Quote, we don't know why this happens. I'm like, I bet you don't. We're not going to know that. So when David wrote, uh, you've, you've formed me in my mother's womb, this is a miraculous action. Anyone that's been present for, for a childbirth, you know that is a miracle that has occurred. This life that did not exist before is now in your arms. Now, some of you are thinking, yeah, I know how babies are made, okay? Birds and bees, which, by the way, what is that all about? That does not make sense to me, the birds and the bees. That just doesn't equate to me. But anything, anyone that knows about how human beings are formed, we, we have to admit it's a miraculous thing. Even if you're like a hardcore atheist and you're angry at God and you hold your baby for the first time, something softens inside of you. And you realize, actually, my life is not over. My life is over as it was at that point. I've heard it said that parenting is like a train that you can't get off of. <laughs> and you don't want to get off of. But still, it is like a train you can't get off of. So that's the first miracle, the miracle of physical birth. But the second miracle is the miracle of spiritual birth, rebirth, God's spirit, a fresh restoration of the spirit of God, because without God, there is no life. You can have breath in your lungs in a heartbeat and not know God. You can have brain activity and not know the living God personally. You can have be alive physically, but be spiritually dead. You can have knowledge of God. I went to confirmation. I got baptized. I went to church and not know God. This is true. I've heard it said the longest distance to travel is the 18 inches from your head to your heart. This is the distance that our enemy of our souls doesn't want us to travel, by the way. He wants you to keep a relationship with God stuck in this sort of just um, intellectual place or an experiential place or a cultural place. You know, I go to church on Christmas and Easter, or I, I, God is, I know God is real, but in your heart you don't really know him. You can have knowledge of God, but not know him. That God knows you, but do all of us know him? In Matthew 7, Jesus tells a story, a long story about the final judgment. And it ends with people coming up to him and saying, Lord, we did all these things for you. We cast out demons, we fed the poor, we, we helped other people, we did it all in your name. And he says something very sobering. He says, depart from me, I never knew you. Now, I don't know about you, but I want God to know me. And I know a lot of people in this room do too. And, and you want to know God, and you do know God. But Jesus, that's the old, it's not, that, the statement of his sounds harsh, but he's really just, it, around that he's saying, I, I just want to know you. I want, to, your, I want my spirit to indwell you, to have living waters come out of your life. I have come to bring life, and life abundantly. He wants to heal your heart. He wants to breathe new life into you. And this is why John Wesley maybe preached on the new birth more than any other doctrine. He preached about it incessantly. It covered so many parts of his sermons. Why did he do that? Because that's maybe the deepest need of human humanity as it exists. You can be physically alive, but spiritually dead. You can have bones and skin and a heartbeat and all those things, but not know God. 
So how can you receive this fresh wind, this resurgence into dry bones? What does that look like? Well, of course, we have to do it by faith. We do it by faith, by trusting in the character and the promises of God. But it's really, when you're doing, we trusting God by faith, what you're doing is you're positioning yourself to receive it. I used an analogy a few weeks ago. It's sort of like sailing. You raise your sail and you tack across the water to catch the wind so that it moves you forward, right? When you trust Christ by faith, you are raising your sail to catch the wind of the Spirit into your life. But this takes prayer and it takes humility to, 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 do, to do this. The old saying is true. If you only have the word, you dry up. But if you only have the spirit, you blow up. But if you have both, you grow up. This is one of the amazing things about the living God, the living God, is that he is attracted to weakness. He goes where people are weakest. He longs to meet with you in the most broken part of your life. And for every human being on the face of the earth, the most broken part of our life is our soul. And so he has come to heal us. He, God cannot resist those who humbly and honestly admit how desperately they need him. And in fact, your weaknesses make room for his power. And the main way we show dependence and weakness on God is through prayer. It's through prayer. Yesterday, we had people praying 24 hours around the clock. I think we're going to start doing that every Saturday, just leading into a Sunday, by the way. I think it's just always a good idea. Um, and Charles Haddon Spurgeon said this, that the, great, the condition of a church may be accurately gauged by his prayer meetings. If God is near a church, it must pray. And if God is not there, one of the first tokens of his absence will be slothfulness in prayer. Henry Nouwen said that a hunger for God is a sign of God's presence. He's so right. A hunger for God, even in, especially in your weaknesses, is a sign of his presence. Am I the only one who gets embarrassed when people say, let's keep prayer in school? Am I the only one? Let me explain what I mean. Yeah, I remember when I was in the 1980s, I think we said a prayer in Goldsboro sometimes. We did like the Pledge of Allegiance, and maybe we said a prayer, I don't remember. But I've always said this, as long as there are final exams, there's going to be prayer in school, y'all. There's nothing to worry about. You can't take prayer out of school. As long as there's people sitting there, there will be prayer in school. There just won't be like mandated prayer. You can't take it out of school. I mean... Let's not talk about prayer in school. Let's talk about prayer in church. We don't have enough prayer in church to begin with. Talk about school. I think we need to practice what we preach at our churches and pray in ways and not worry about what that looks like. You know, Jim Cimbala said this, that I'm not sure that the Roman emperors back in the early church day, I don't think they cared very much about prayer in the Roman schools around them. I don't think they cared about Caligula or Claudius or Nero. I don't think they wrung their hands when they said, oh no, Emperor Caligula is a bisexual and he wants to appoint his horse to the Roman Senate. What will we do? I don't think he worried about, the church worried about such things as that. I don't think we respond to issues in our world with boycotts and letter writing and politics and 
No, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, he says the weapons of our warfare are not human. We fight battles not as the world does. We fight battles on our knees. When we have the body and the blood through communion, that's how we fight our battles. We fight our battles by trusting in the living God to do what we cannot do. That is how we do it. Our weapons of our warfare are not of flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, forces of evil around us. Do you get what I'm saying, church? So when we feel tempted to tear someone down, don't. It's easy to do that. If you feel, see deficiencies in other people's lives, then be the change that you would desire to see. Step into that gap that exists in that place. If you see a lack of virtue, be virtuous. If you see a lot of worldliness in someone's life, be more, seek holiness. If you see someone that's a liar, be a person of truth. Let your actions speak. But the answer is, is more prayer and humility. Because for example, in Acts chapter four, when the apostles were unjustly arrested, they were beaten, they were threatened. You could very much call this a dry bones moment when the valley looked empty and dead and there was no chance for help. I mean, so much of the book of Acts is simply them praying, really. They're praying all the time. They're moving from one prayer experience to another. And as they move, they don't call for political leverage. They're headed to a prayer meeting. They're headed for a fresh encounter with the living God. They're headed for a place where the Holy Spirit would indwell them and fill them yet again. So when Israel was enslaved in Ezekiel's day, living under horrible cruelty, what did Ezekiel do? He sought the Lord. He sought the Lord, and the Lord spoke to him and said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to bring new life out of what looks impossible, but I need you to prophesy. I need you to speak on my behalf. I need you to say what no one else will say. It sounds crazy, by the way. Speak to a bunch of dry bones, and they're going to come to life. But you know what? If we don't do it, no one else will. And there are a lot of people in our world that are in a dry place right now. You, your life is a dry valley. There's, no, there's nothing living that you can see, and it seems impossible. Those bones have been there a long time. They don't even stink anymore. They're just dry. Well, the good news, friends, is that the God of the Bible, the God, has come to breathe his spirit into his people. This is the good news. This is one of the promises of the gospel of Jesus Christ, is that it's not merely a head knowledge about God, but that we can know God. We can be temples of the Holy Spirit. He will indwell us from the inside out and make us new creations. As Paul said, that anyone that's in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. So as we do at the close of every service, and we have this time of ministry, of prayer, you can come forward to pray if you wish. If you want someone to pray with you, we'll have some friends up here that would do that. If you don't want anyone to pray with you, that's totally fine. You can simply um, just, just put your, keep your head down and, and don't raise your hand, and we'll, we'll honor that space. But friends, this is a great time to come and receive a fresh wind of the Holy Spirit. That is what the church should be here to do, is to help each other, to love each other in this way. Friends, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your presence. We thank you for your power. God, we thank you that you can, you can indwell within us and help us be more than we ever thought we could be. God, we bring to you the dry places of our lives. We bring to you the places of our lives that, look, that appear to be dead, 
that appear to be hopeless and cut off, that have no future. But thank you, God, that you are the God of second chances, that you are the God that continually raises the dead, always bringing new life from what appears hopeless. Holy Spirit, minister to your people in this time. We create space, O oh God, for you to do what you will. In Jesus' name, amen.